a lot of people who I take to the White House, they assume that these were closed after 9-11. And what I always have to tell them is, actually, they were closed in 1995. Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob and this episode's special guest. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. If you want to check out other podcast episodes or see the show notes from this episode, you can do that over at triphacksdc.com slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by Triphacks DC Tours. We may be on hiatus right now because of the pandemic, but we will be back eventually. So the next time you travel to DC, we'll be here to help show you around. You can learn more over at triphacksdc.com slash tours. Today I am joined by Tim Krepp. Tim is an author, a former candidate for Congress, and the guy that the local news calls when they need a quote from a DC tour guide. So, Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Did I remember all of your job titles? I couldn't I, remember what else you did. I, I can't either. That, that's good enough for me right now. Sounds good. So, uh, today we're doing an episode on the modern history of DC tourism. And the reason I wanted to do an episode like this is because we're in a bit of a pandemic right now. And I feel like everybody's doing an episode about what things are going to be like later or what's going to happen down the road. And to be completely honest, nobody knows anything. We don't know anything. Not a clue. Not a clue. Yeah. So, you know, rather than go and speculate and make a bunch of wild guesses, I thought, why not look backwards instead? And, you know, maybe we can learn some things about the way things used to be and how they've changed over the years. And I think it'll be fun just to look back on the ways that the city's changed over time. Quite so, yeah. So I know we've both been in the tourism industry for a while, and I think uh, hopefully we'll have some interesting tidbits to share. But if anybody who's listening has any that they remember from you know this time, feel free to write in or leave me a comment and let me know too. So I thought the 1990s would be a good place to start. You know, go back maybe 30 years, because to me, the 90s was kind of the beginning of the modern era of tourism in DC, or at least the way that I see it. Is that how you would see it too? Uh, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's a, a subjective term of what is modern. But uh, yeah, I mean, that, 90s when I first came to Washington, DC, it's when I... I Got my feet wet living here a little bit. So I came here pre-90s as a, as a tourist myself with my family and all that stuff. And then by the time the 90s rolled around, I was starting to live here full time uh, and started to see that, that change. I think there was definitely a, a cusp point somewhere in the 90s where uh, how we approached the city um, definitely changed. Yeah, the 90s was a bit of a rough decade for D.C., for New York, for all all big cities, really. But I also feel like it was kind of the time when things started to turn around for the better and people started taking vacations and going to cities to see the sites and to explore a little bit in a way that they might not have done previously. Exactly. The city as an attraction versus the city as just the place where the attractions were at started then. And it's it's not to say that there was nothing here prior to that, because you can look at the National Mall, for example, and, you know, the Washington Monument and the Capitol, those are from the 1800s. <laughs> right, and then you exactly. look at a bunch of the museums and those were built earlier than the 90s. But there were a few that opened in the 90s that really kind of kickstarted what we know of as the National Mall to this day. Uh, yeah, very much so. The, 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 our definition of the mall expanded in the 90s and, and changed quite a bit. So as far as the uh, National Mall goes, there were two monuments that opened in the 90s. There was the Korean War Memorial. That one opened up in 1995. And then there was the FDR Memorial. That one opened in 1997. 
And so before that, it was kind of like there were those four big monuments, you know, Lincoln, Jefferson, the Washington Monument. But there weren't really tours the way that we think of them nowadays. You know, when we lead tours around those monuments, it's really kind of one to the next and a very smooth flowing experience. But it wasn't like that before because you really had to trek from one to the other. Uh, indeed, I mean, it kind of goes back to the uh, you know, Frederick Olmsted, the uh, the City Beautiful movement, the whole idea of Washington D.C. designed for photography, for for the beautiful vistas, the scenic views, and not as a walkable, approachable kind of thing. And that's what, uh, especially the Washington Monument, and to a lesser but still real extent, the Lincoln Memorial and the Jefferson Memorials are designed to be seen from afar more than they're designed to be seen up close. Um, and yeah, and the the and you can see those memorials. It starts even a little bit early before that with the Vietnam Memorial, but especially with the Korean and the FDR Memorial, they're designed to be gone up close, to touch, to interact, uh, and that changes not just the the individual memorial, but the entire approach to memorial space on the mall. That's a great point. You know, it it seems so obvious when you think about it. Like you look at the Jefferson Memorial from the other side of the Tidal Basin, and it's picturesque and. That's kind of exactly how it was intended to be, whereas the newer memorials really are more hands-on in a way that those older ones aren't. The classic shot of the Jefferson is across the memorial, across the tidal basin with the cherry blossoms. And frankly, you've seen it when you've seen it that from that. Yeah, I was just about to say the cherry blossoms, of course, are the classic view of the Jefferson Memorial. I feel like the 1990s was a big moment for the National Mall as well, thanks to former President Bill Clinton. He really liked to jog, and he really liked to jog on the National Mall, perhaps uh, to the detriment of Secret Service at the time. Uh, we all, uh, yeah, I came up, a little background on myself, I came up here in 93 for college, um, and that was uh, just after uh, Clinton started doing that. I mean, almost immediately after Clinton started doing that. So uh, as college freshmen, you'd, you'd, uh, you'd go out there, you try to catch a, a sight of Clinton running. Um, it was a little bit early for my tastes, frankly, uh, in the college days sometimes. Um, but the, the Clinton McDonald's over on, on um, was it 17th Street was, uh, was well known. Uh, that was a, a fun place to try to visit whenever you had a chance and <laughs> catch him there. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it, 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 he was, President Clinton was well known for making the city approachable. I mean, he would, he would go out, he would go walk, he'd go to attend church um, uh, at, at local churches, things like that, which made it feel like more of a real place. It was eye-opening um, in a way that previous presidents of either party hadn't really done. Now, do you know if the, that Clinton McDonald's that you mentioned, is that still there? Or is it one of those ones that they've renovated over the years, so it's not really the same anymore? I, I believe it's the same one. It's the same storefront. I have not uh, uh, gone in. Um, let me preface that. This is the, the, the hazy memory of a college freshman that we were certain that was the one that was at. Um, but yeah, the legend had it. It was the, uh, it was the one on 17th Street right, uh, right across from the old executive office building. Uh, yes, of course. It's, it's funny to think about. Bill Clinton eating McDonald's because he became a vegan at some <laughs> right. point. I don't know yeah. exactly the point. And so the idea of him going and, you know, getting a quarter pounder or something just <laughs> strikes me a little odd. But I guess, you know, times change, of course, people change. The relationship of Clinton and McDonald's could be uh, a metaphor for the, the status of the Democratic, Democratic Party in the last 30 years as well. But uh, <laughs> a different podcast. Yeah, of course, this isn't a politics podcast. That certainly is content for one. I think it's really interesting if you see these old video clips of Bill Clinton jogging around on the National Mall because it's just like not, not something that would happen anymore, not necessarily because someone might not want to do it, but because the Secret Service really has the White House locked down so much nowadays that to imagine them just leaving and going for a stroll out in public, it just seems unfathomable. But hey, 
this wasn't that long ago, and that's no, exactly what they did. The, the Secret Service would have absolute kittens today if they uh, tried to do that. And even even at the time, it was it was uh, they they weren't real happy with it. There was some you know press reports about tension between the Secret Service and, and the president. I, I remember at some point they finally put in a running track, um, either on the ellipse or in the White House grounds, so that he could do some running and not have to go out and about and uh, uh, expose himself. Um, so there's always a tension between the president's desire to interact with folks uh, and the Secret Service need to protect them. I mean, that was something that uh, that Lincoln talked about. Harry, Harry Truman is very famous for for strolling and going on walks, which the Secret Service didn't like that as well. So it's uh, it's going only one way, I'm afraid, but it's been a longstanding discussion. Yeah, I read a book about Secret Service, and the author made a really interesting point, which is that they have very strong opinions about what's okay and what's not okay. But at the end of the day... The president is the boss and they're working for him. So whatever he wants ultimately is going to go. Now, another thing that's changed over the years, and this is um, one that people will definitely notice today, is going inside the White House. Now, I found an old travel book from 1999, and I thought the chapter that described the process for visiting the White House to be almost laugh out loud funny because it said, you know, if you want to go inside the White House, you need to get in line by 730 because if you get there at eight, you might not get a ticket. And I laughed because the idea that you could walk up at seven thirty and get in the same day is not not possible anymore. It's not possible, no. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Now it's uh, yeah, apply months in advance and just prepare to be rejected. And yeah, no, it's it's not, not even. And I'm probably overselling how how open it is now. Uh, no, but I remember that in college, that was quite the thing to do was to was to go really early in the morning when your parents were in town, and you would go to the White House. Um, and, and try to get out there and get them to, uh, to let you in to go, you know, you just be first in line for the tickets. Uh, my, my, uh, girlfriend at the time was working at the white house and she was able to get front of the line tickets, which was the first time a big deal. And the second or third time was like, I just don't want to see it again. I live here. I'm too cool to go to the white house that often. That's always something tourists do. So, uh, it's a freshman thing to do, but yeah, but it was, it was a very different cultural, uh, phenomenon then. So I'll have to ask you to rack your brain. Do you remember when you went inside back then? Were the rooms that you got to see the same as the rooms that you get to oh, see yeah. nowadays? Yeah, uh, yeah. You lined up. Um, what is that drive? The drive between the road between um, uh, Treasury and the East Wing was open. Uh, where, where are the public entrances today? Uh, you would go in much the same route. And you would go in the uh, um, yeah that that gets you on the ground level which the old lumber rooms have been turned into the china room, the dish room, whatever they call it. You see that, you come upstairs, you see the east room, the red room, the blue room, the green room, um, state dining room, out the hall, much much the same route as it is today. It was a pretty pretty standard format. Yes, yeah, so of course, the rooms you didn't mention are the West Wing rooms, the ones that people actually want to see, but that you don't get to see when you go on the public tour of the White House. Oh, absolutely. They, they were not on the public tour then, uh, but... Again, my girlfriend worked there, and it was pretty easy for her just to sign me in. Uh, and she was an intern. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, and we'll, we'll leave the Clinton intern jokes for for later. She could just sign me in. There wasn't uh, there wasn't anywhere near. I can't imagine today how how difficult it would be uh, an employee, a real employee, there to get someone into the West Wing. Very, very different. You know, as far as how things have changed over the years, I feel like that one's the most drastic change. But one uh, that is also changed, and it's you know tangentially related to the White House, are the streets next to the White House. So specifically, we have Pennsylvania Avenue on the north side, and then we have the E Street on the south side. And a lot of people who I take to the White House, they assume that these were closed after 9-11. No, and no, what I always no. have to tell them is, actually, they were closed in 1995 because of the Oklahoma City federal building bombing. 
indeed, that reshaped a lot of things around here. And that uh, that might even have as much, uh, I'm not sure more, but as much of an impact on on the security landscape around here as 9-11. I mean, that's when all the Jersey barriers started popping up. Um, and it was a it was a very hurried uh, effect. It was just, you know, bring the Jersey berries out of a truck, throw them up there, and they sat there forever. Um, and then what happened is over time, um, the you know, and as you know as well as I do, the very cumbersome process of designing anything in Washington, D.C. takes five, six, seven, 30 years uh, when you have to get all the various agencies to sign off on the, uh, on the historic preservation, all that type of stuff. So a lot of the permanent fixes, like the uh, the 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 ha walls of the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial ones, those didn't come until 10, 15 years after Oklahoma City. So it, people thought they were there in reaction to 9-11, but they had been well in place uh, and were replacing temporary Jersey barriers at the time. And the reason why Oklahoma City was such a big deal is because if you remember how he, you know, played it out is that he rented a U-Haul truck or box truck and put a bomb in it and then drove it into the parking garage and blew it up. So after that, they got really paranoid about anyone with a large truck or van or anything like that going near a building of any importance, including the White House and including the Capitol. Uh, Even to this day, if you are moving to Washington, D.C., and you attempt to drive your U-Haul within vicinity of the Capitol, the Capitol Police will come out and tell you to turn it around. That was um, that, that was actually a change after 9-11, is that we used to be able to take uh, tour buses up Capitol Hill. Um, and if you look at some of the very early renderings for, um, for the Capitol Visitor Center, um, the intention for that was to drop folks off at the top of the hill. Um, the bus would go up Constitution, take a right and first, drop you off there right at the... Uh, at the um, between the Library of Congress and the Capitol, uh, you get in line for the for the visitor center, and then the bus would uh, either pick you up or you'd go on from there. But uh, but but that that changed after nine eleven. Um, I think someone clever got the idea that what if they fill the tour bus up with explosives? How big would that explosive circle be? But yeah, I remember right after uh, Oklahoma City, uh, you started seeing U-Haul trucks that got close to the White House would be stopped and searched. It was, it was uh, a pretty common thing at the time. So that was that was perhaps the moment that changed everything. We all talk about nine eleven, but really it was nineteen ninety five. I think that did it. At least from the the big ticket, from the street closures, from the, from adjusting the grid, um, they did reopen East Street for a little while, um, but but nine eleven finally closed that off. Um, and Pennsylvania Avenue has been interesting, seeing how that how that changed. Is they I mean they closed it and it was just blocked off for a while, but almost instantly it became. A public space. People would be rollerblading out there. They would be uh, playing uh, hockey out there. Tourists line up there for their pictures. So, um, so it wasn't lost to the public, even though it was lost to cars. Uh, East Street's a very different uh, scenario, and that has much to do with the design of the ellipse uh, as anything else. Yeah. So we're going to get into the 2000s and all the 9/11 security changes in a, in a moment. But I want to mention one more thing from the 1990s that was a game changer. Uh, literally, uh, the MCI Center opened oh. in 1997 downtown, became the Verizon Center, and now it's the Capital One Arena. When I did my episode on sports, uh, you know, my guests had many, many mental slips and called it the Verizon Center because we will for the next 10 years. I'm not entirely certain I actually internalized that it wasn't the Verizon Center anymore. Yeah, you're right. I keep forgetting that. So yeah, yeah. I, part of me still stutters and calls the MCI Center. So uh, that's uh. <laughs> so. Of course, it's a it was a big deal because uh, people come to town and they don't always just want to see monuments and museums. Sometimes they want to check out a game. Sometimes they want to see Beyonce or some other major concert or monster trucks or whatever is playing at the uh, arena. And prior to that, we did not have an arena 
in Washington, no. D.C. If you wanted to go see a basketball or a hockey game, you had to go way out to Maryland, way out to the suburbs. To way see out, way out to the suburbs. I, I went to a Aerosmith concert there when I was in college, um, and it was, uh, I, I swear, covered wagon journeys took less time than that. You know, this is obviously pre-Uber days and a bunch of starving freshmen trying to go out there on like two bucks or something like that. It was like 16 buses or something like that you had to take out there. Yeah, and it's it's odd because I think nowadays in the 2020s, people think of basketball and hockey and these arenas as being downtown amenities. Most cities have put them downtown or near their downtown, but it, it wasn't always like that, not just here, but in a lot of places too. So that's a relatively recent modern phenomenon. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, no, it's, uh, oh, well, I mean, I guess re-recent. It was that way for a while and then and then switched over and then came back. But yeah, and I think for tourism, that's a big deal because there's plenty of things to do in D.C. during the day. And there's, uh, I mean, there's more things to do than are really needed for a family trip or for a school group. But what do you do in the evenings with them? How do you fill up that, that evening time? Uh, and this filled that hole. So uh, for, for both family tourism and for school groups, that gave you another option, another, another arrow in the quiver of things to do um, after hours. Well, I think we've got the 90s covered fairly well. So let's move into the 2000s, which is a big decade for many reasons. But I want to start on January 1st, 2000, or December 31st, 1999. We had uh, Bill Clinton come out to the National Mall and give a little speech. And then they lit the fuse and fireworks went off and the Washington Monument got lit up and we celebrated the millennium. Y2K <laughs> did not happen, but we made it into the 2000s. I, I'll take your word on that. I was in Japan at the time, uh, so I, I missed that part of it. But yeah. So 2000 was a big year for Washington, D.C. It actually set a tourism record that year, 17.4 million total visitors in 2000, which is a pretty big deal, uh, especially coming out of the 90s. We won't see that again for a while. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I hate to say you're right, but you're right. Um, and another big thing that happened in 2000 that you already mentioned in passing was the Capitol Visitor Center. That was the year that it broke ground. Broke ground, yeah. And it was finished, what, last year? So what was it like to visit the Capitol before the Visitor Center opened? Someone was asking me about this recently, and you know, I was really racking my brain to remember what door we used to get in the Capitol and all that stuff. Before the Visitor Center. Now... Um, when I was in school here uh, in the 90s, uh, you could almost go right back in. It wasn't quite that simple, but you could uh, you could bluff your way in pretty easily. It was always kind of a big joke among you, know, like, oh, I work for Senator so-and-so, even if you don't work for anyone, which I didn't. And you could just kind of like, uh, if, you, if you look like you knew what you're doing, no one really would mess with you. And I even got with my roommate, who was a, who was a intern on the Hill, uh, I was able to get down into the sub-basement, to the crypt levels, and kind of wander around down there until some cop came and found us and said, Hey, you kids get out of here kind of thing. <laughs> um, but no follow up, no, no, uh, more, more of like, you're in the wrong section, not like a security risk kind of thing. Um, and the big thing for us back then was that the, um, um, the, the, the West balcony was open and that was, uh, the classic pl place to take a date, you know, to, to take a stroll down to the, to the Capitol, just a very scenic overlooking the mall. Uh, that's a pity that that was lost, but but specifically with tourism in the Capitol Visitor Center, um, I started guiding in 2000 and let's call it 2006, if I remember correctly. Um, uh, so a couple of years before the Visitor Center opened and they had these old uh, chemical warfare tents. Um, they're, they're for the military homeland security thing where they're designed to uh, big, long, long, long tents, uh, probably maybe 100, 200 feet long or so, give or take. I have to do the math on that one. Um, and they're designed to be to, to be screened so that you drop all the flaps, you go into to door one and 
they cut off all your clothes. You go into the next chamber and they hose you down and then they do and so on. So that if they have to decontaminate you. Um, and they use them for the security screening um, stuff. So uh, so you can still, so they still have the pipes in the ceiling for all the spray down and all that type of stuff. So you'd wait in this long, long line and they just, you just, it was sweltering uh, to get through maybe two or three metal detectors. Um, and that was it. That was, they're just on the house side. They took forever. And you would wait. Um, easily an hour and an hour and a half. There was no real ticketing system that we have now. You either had a staff-led tour, um, but the staff could not get you through the security line any quicker, so you'd still have to wait in that, that got off the line. Or you had the Redcoat tour, but the Redcoat tour gave you a specific time to be there. So say you had a 1 o'clock tour, you had to be up there at 11.30 because you had to get to that security, and they wouldn't reschedule the, the Redcoat tour. The Redcoat is the Capital Visitor Service. For those that aren't familiar with it, uh, so it really just played with your day. And I would say about half my tours, and increasingly as I got a little more experienced, we would have the capital itinerary, and we'd say, "Do you really want to wait in that line? Do you want to wait and deal with all that, or do you just want to do a walk around the grounds? We'll point out a few things, go to the Library of Congress, and call it a day." And it became uh, so we, we skipped the capital. It was a thing that we could uh, we could usually talk our our visitors out of doing because um, you get in there. And the other thing that was a, was a huge game changer. When the capital, when the visitor center opened, when broke when it, when it um, opened, were the headphones. The the and you've taken the capital tour. You have the headphones where the guide speaks on a microphone, can just talk in a regular tone of voice, and everyone on his or her tour hears it through the earpiece um, they all wear. So before that, all the guides were competing with their voice alone in the capital rotunda. You would have five, ten, fifteen groups in there. And the only way to compete is to talk louder. So it became an arms race. So it was just a, a noisy, sweaty. I think when the visitor center finally opened, um, I believe it was Harry Reid got in a little bit of trouble. Senator from Nevada, former majority minority leader, that said that, yeah, you can smell the tour groups coming. Um, and everyone kind of came down on him. And like, he wasn't wrong. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, you know, DC, May, sweaty tent. You know, it was a pretty miserable experience. So that was a, br- that was a brief period of time. Uh, that was the direct result of 9-11. So, you know, if people were listening closely, we said that the visitor center broke ground in 2000, and then it just seemingly took forever to open. And a big reason for that is because they were really beefing up the security to deal with the aftermath of 9-11. Exactly. It was, it was, it had a certain vision of what it was going to be with increased security. Uh, again, post Oklahoma City, they were they were revamping things at all time, but what those requirements were got completely rejiggered after nine eleven. Um, so that uh, that changed everything on that one. Uh, I also understand they there was you know some add on to the project. Congressman wanted extra office space, things like that. Yeah. So nine eleven happened in two thousand one, obviously. And for people who have good memories, they might they might remember the anthrax scare. So whoever these people were, they kept mailing this, you know toxic spore to the Capitol. Well, to many places, but many of them wound up getting mailed to the Capitol. And so there were, there was this moment when whoever had the job of opening the mail in the mail room, you know, they had to watch out to make sure they didn't get this stuff on them. Oh, it was quite the the thing they had to. Um, yeah. So the, the two folks that died were, were postal workers at the Brentwood facility up in uh, Northeast DC. Um, so they, and they, Someone would have to double check on me on this. I'm not an expert on it, but someone I believe they believe one of the envelopes may have ripped open in the processing facility up there, and that's how they were exposed. Um, just just processing the mail, 
but yeah, uh, then it, it went to, oh, I remember Senator Leahy's office, and I forget who else, in the Hart office building. Um, and they had the Hart office building closed down for uh, a, good, a good year and a half, two years. And that, that whole thing got lost because it happened almost immediately after 9-11. But, uh, but yeah, you, you would drive by, you'd go by the, the Hart office building, and it would be wrapped in sheet plastic. And they, um, I mean, they just evacuated it. So people had their lunches sitting out on the refrigerator and it went moldy. It became quite the, uh, <laughs> quite the saga. Everything that was soft, every fabric, couches, things like that had to be ripped out of there, redone. So it was, uh, it was quite the, um, elaborate thing that if it wasn't for the other news that was going on at the time, it would have got probably a little more play. Yeah. I mean, those, those years, 2001 and then 2002, it was like the hits just keep on coming. Yeah. 2002 was the year of the DC sniper, which, People, people who live here will certainly remember uh, and may even remember the weeks when it was at its worst. But I think a lot of people who are visiting might vaguely remember the DC sniper. So what do you remember about that time? It was, it was funny because I was working, um, uh, I was in the Navy at the time and I was working out in suburban Maryland. And of the, uh, I don't know, 10 to 15 other officers I was working with. Um, when I started working there, I was the only one that lived in DC. All the other ones lived in suburban Virginia or Maryland. And they were quite concerned uh, because the sniper was not, it was, the, it was the, the beltway sniper at the time. It wasn't the DC yeah. sniper. It was the DC, the, Maryland the, and Virginia. Yeah, right. Uh, and only the only, the only shooting in DC was just barely over the border and uh, up north, near Maryland. Um, and it was very clear. He was, he was using the highways to, to shoot, to make his attacks and to to um well, it's not they we thought he at the time uh to make his escape but uh it was a it was a it was a very tense time for everyone people were were panicked to pump their own gas uh, and with good cause this guy was just randomly shooting without picking any of his victims yeah yeah i remember there were gas stations that would put up you know black tarps so yep. that you know you couldn't actually see anyone who was behind it. I, I know there were people in D.C. who, when they were walking from one place to the next, they would z- walk in a zigzag pattern because they thought that that was gonna throw them off instead of walking in a straight line. So it was just it was just a wild few weeks there, and eventually the person did get caught, and the, the accomplice. There were two people. Uh, one person was a juvenile. So um, yeah, that was a scary time. But I don't I don't want to focus on just the bad times because the 2000s was was a decade when some good stuff happened too. Uh, we got some new monuments uh, and memorials on the National Mall. We got the World War II Memorial in 2004, and that was a big deal. And it was the memorial that uh, was perhaps the biggest deal of the war memorials because the World War II vets had waited forever for that thing. Yes, 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 yes. The whole greatest generation thing and all that. So it it really ties the room together. Um, you know, it pulls it pulls together the Lincoln and the the World War II, excuse me, Lincoln and uh, Washington Monument. It makes kind of a seamless flow, like you're talking about earlier. And yeah, and that and that uh, kind of created this idea that not that we didn't pay attention to World War II, but it it gave a a final burst of recognition to all those folks of that generation. And it's the one that I always try to end my tour on when I do an evening tour because I want to get there when it's dark. I don't really care about seeing the other ones in the dark, despite that you know piece of advice that everybody gives. World War II really comes together. I like the intimacy. I like how the the light creates almost its own room uh, of space on the mall. Um, it, it really does well at night. Yeah, we got a couple of museums in the two thousands as well. We got the Smithsonian's American Indian Museum, which is clear, close to the Capitol. Uh, good good lunch spot. And we also got the uh, Udvar-Hazy Center out in Virginia, out by Dulles Airport, which is perhaps, uh, I don't know if you've taken many groups out there, but it's uh, a really amazing and underappreciated museum. Yeah, it's kind of, um, 
It's far away. Yeah, it's, I mean, both those museums um, I love, and yet I'm slightly frustrated with because they don't quite they don't quite hit. Uh, I think uh, on the notes. I mean, the Uvar Hazy is a great museum, but it's just a pain to get to. I mean, it's not. I mean, when you're working, I mean, I, I have a tremendous response to it when I take school kids out there. When I take uh, older folks, veterans, it's great. Um, but it doesn't. The, the timing just doesn't work on it. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a solid hour to get out there, and a solid hour to get back when you count the transition time of getting on the bus, getting off the bus, and all that type of stuff. And that and that just eats away at time, which is a pity because it's a fabulous museum. I mean, really, you could you can really spend some time there. I think it's uh, um, it does a lot for everyone. Um, I'm not sure how to fix that. You just can't make it closer to DC, and I get the reasons for why it's out there. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's a good museum. And the Indy Museum, uh, as you said, the food court was amazing. It was just a it was a, it was a, it was it was really kind of the first place you ever went to the mall to actually eat, as opposed to like, oh god, I'm paying eighteen dollars for a hot dog and it's horrible. But the exhibits. I remember when it first opened, you had to have a ticket to get in. It was a um, kind of a big deal. It was unlike, say, the the Holocaust Museum, which opened in the 90s, or the African American more recently. That wasn't persistent. After about nine months, everyone saw their fill of it, and okay, we can just open it up. And it's uh, yeah, it's it's one that I like, but not one that I could spend an entire day in. Which is not true of many of the museums on the National Mall. Indeed, indeed, yeah. Uh, we had a we had a few other. Big things happened. My favorite was the baseball return to DC, two thousand five. Across the street from me, over here at RFK, yeah. So uh, yeah, you uh, you live on that side of town, so you had very easy access to baseball when it first came to DC. I, I did, and uh, I, I think you left out an important part of my bio is that I uh, I got to run as the various presidents after the second season when they came around. So I got to run as Teddy oh, yes. and uh, Lincoln. Yeah, I only learned about that recently because the local news did a story about that. Uh, thanks, thanks to the World Series. <laughs> Um, Indeed, yeah. They they asked me if I want to run again. I'm like, oh, I don't think I can run again, much less. Uh, it's not whether I want to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the racing presidents is a fan favorite, of course. For a while, uh, Teddy didn't get to win. Teddy Roosevelt no. didn't get to win. Now he wins all the time. Yeah, that was a that was a complete happenstance. Uh, um, I probably started running the second or third week um, that they had him there. Um, it was after the All Star break, the second year, and uh, it just um, he just hadn't won for a while. And the the guy that was running it's like, hey, you know, we're getting some we're getting some letters here. Why don't you just kind of tank it a couple times? And so we did, <laughs> and it it started built on itself, and then uh, um, and then we just had fun with it for a while. So, so I think a lot of people um, sometimes get the dates mixed up because 2005 is the year that baseball returned to Washington, but 2008 was the year that Nationals Park opened, and so for those three uh, years, 2005, six, and seven, they played at RFK Stadium, which is this quite frankly awful mixed use falling apart. This delightfully, you know, um, <laughs> horrible. So yeah, no, oh, the point. We that's where uh, that's our my wife and I's pandemic walk because we go walk around the stadium nowadays. It's because it's pretty uh, desolate and uh, uh, um, yeah, it was it was it was past its prime then um, and has not aged well. But uh, yeah, so it was nice when the new park opened up. Yeah, very very nice park. I mean, it's not like Yankee Stadium or I guess the old Yankee Stadium or Wrigley where it's going to be, you know memorable in that way but it's very nice yankee stadium isn't like yankee stadium anymore so i, I correct, tried to correct myself <laughs> there but i it's a it's a little shiny new shopping mall-ish for my taste but any new stadium is going to be a new stadium you don't get you know you don't get 50 years of history without 50 years of history so we're going to grow into it that's that's just the way it's going to be and it's uh it takes a little time to uh develop that that depth of uh emotion to it and we're well on our way there
Yeah. Well, there's no baseball right now, but hopefully soon enough we'll be back. It keeps our streak as the longest running World Series champion alive. So that's a, yeah, that's <laughs> something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Silver lining. So it's worth noting that uh, because of 9-11, there was a dip in tourism in the 2000s. So 2000, the year 2000, we did hit that, or break that record with 17.4 million visitors. And then it dipped and never quite caught up to it during the rest of the 2000s. But in 2009, uh, we had the Obama inauguration, which was historic because uh, a bajillion people came to Washington, D.C. to see it. And I also kind of feel like, and I'm curious if you agree with this, this was kind of the moment when Washington, D.C. became a bit hip. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, you're, you're talking to a guy that bought his house in uh, 03, so uh, I've been living <laughs> here for quite a while before that. I, I wouldn't say it was like uh, a pure inflection point, but it's a it's a point where, it, where, where the, the, the trend line broke through the the noise and started becoming recognizable to folks. So uh, when I when I moved to our house in uh, in, in 03, every year my father-in-law used to ask me, so w- when are you going to move out to the suburbs? Hmm. Not listening to never. Um, and around that point was when he stopped asking me that question. So either he finally started listening to me after 10 years or – it, as you say, it's becoming more and more recognized that people do live in cities, and and we should we should at least make note that people have been living in the city for <laughs> decades now. So, uh, um, but you know, as opposed to long term residents, a lot of newer residents are moving in, and it becoming uh, a definite demog- you know, obviously clear demographic shift as well. Yeah, I've tried to bust that myth that no one is from D.C., that horrible myth that unfortunately many of our colleagues, many tour guides perpetuate, whether they mean to or not. It's uh, not to bag on our colleagues because some are excellent, but uh, a lot of them are the folks that live in the suburbs and uh, um, and perpetuate the no one lives here in D.C. myth, which is like there's, there's half a million of us and growing. Come on. So in any case, uh, we've made it up to the 2010s, which uh, is, you know, the decade with the most recent memories. Uh, and so we had some pretty big changes during these years, too. You know, 2011. So. 2011 is important because we finally caught up and broke that old tourism record from 2000. So every year since 2011 has been a brand. Every year I read the press release and it says we broke the record again. Exactly. And then it was it was funny because my my wife and I moved here in 01. We moved right back after September 11th. Totally coincidental. Uh, We both gone to college here. We had gone elsewhere. We came back in 01. And you had the town to yourself. I mean, you, I mean, I love going to museums. I love going to places and you could just walk on in. You didn't have to worry about anything. So, and I started working as a guide in 06, uh, taking people. So you didn't have to, uh, deal with the numbers, the crowds. And the, the two things that changes, obviously the security increases. And I think we'll talk about that a bit more, but just the, the numbers of people visiting places got got crowded. You know, the, the love to death thing started you know, at that time. Uh, we had a bit of a, bump down with the the recession and things like that That's it, right. it, it, yeah. Yeah, different. Um, but what I, I noticed more than anything is that instead of staying out in you know frederick we're staying in bethesda or something like that for the hotels um so but still there's a, a little still was still a lot it wasn't like it went away just a little bit easier to get into places yeah a lot of new hotels that opened up in the 2010s Exactly, and that and that open up capacity, things like that. Um, um, so, so the capacity has been growing, but the demand has been growing even faster. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned that places started to feel crowded because the 2010s 
as far as tourism, global tourism goes, might be remembered as the decade of over-tourism, where these places that just couldn't accommodate the people just became overrun and it kind of ruined it. And I never really felt like we experienced that the same way that some places did, because in many ways we're built for the crowds. But yeah, I did start um, really preferring to give my tours in January instead of in July, <laughs> not just because I hate the heat and humidity, but because nobody's around. Same here. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, you, you had to, you had to be smart about it. You, you know, as you know, as well as I do, all the school groups descend on the mall after dinner because it's free. And what else you can do with that, that evening time? So from 6.30 till 9.30 at night, it's just a swarming mess of, 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 uh, of eighth graders, uh, from, you know, traditionally from February on up through June, July. Yeah, you're right. It's not like the Grand Canyon, which is a natural wonder that we're trying to mitigate the, the effects of humankind on here um our problems we we didn't just we just didn't manage it terribly well um a lot of our ticketing systems were were optimistic we added our own problems with over security things like that the 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 byzantine and uh, very very broken up nature of our management between the park service dc the army at arlington and so on no one really talks to each other that well uh, made it made self-inflicted problems not not something intrinsic to this site like other places that have to deal with it it, we, we did have some self-inflicted wounds, uh, especially when it comes to security. Sometimes it just feels like it's overkill and it really slows everybody down. But it's just the world, you know, we kind of accepted that that's just the world we live in, uh, I guess. And one one important thing you mentioned is that uh, for 2020, I actually had planned to start my evening tour at five o'clock. I had previously been starting it at six or six thirty. And someone asked me, they said, well, you're doing the tour now before it gets dark. We're not going to be able to see anything in the dark. And I said, yeah, but you have to understand that there's so many eighth grade kids here after dinner that I'm, I'm really doing you a favor by letting you see these things before they all show up. Yes, so. it is. Absolutely. It is. Uh, uh, and I hate it, too. But uh, but we, we can't get back to the hotel at seven after dinner. So we need something to do with them. Uh, and we'll we'll do a ball game. We'll do sheer madness or do something. But that all costs money. So Monuments uh, are free. So. That's uh, yeah, monuments are free, and uh, uh, and and time is at a premium. If you have a two or three day tour, museums are only open from ten to five, or give or take. So you got to cram all that stuff in then. So the stuff that you do on the shoulder times, uh, the Capitol and Arlington in the morning, and then the memorials at night uh, are huge. Speaking of monuments and memorials, I think twenty the 2010s will be remembered as the decade when the Washington Monument was never open. We had a few problems with the Washington Monument. We had an earthquake in 2011 that messed it up pretty badly and that caused several years of repairs and then we had an elevator problem more recently that caused years and years more of of problems well i i mean it was uh, much like that in the 1990s too i don't know if you remember the big blue condom uh it was closed for several years they were fixing it back then as well so uh yeah i just don't know that people are supposed to be 500 feet up in the air so <laughs> we'll see what goes from there <laughs> and uh the 2010s we also got a brand new museum the national uh, the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Always got to make sure I get all the words in there. And in in my opinion, the best museum in town. It's an excellent museum. It's just a, it's just a well done museum. Um, I mean, I got a, my, a few minor quibbles with it in terms of the flow and how to handle things, but uh, but the, the the content is amazing. Um, I really like how it's set up with the the downstairs portion as a kind of linear flow, so you get the chronological flow of things, and then the upstairs is a little more a la carte, so you can you can pick and choose your experience. It's just a, a phenomenal museum. Yeah. So I kind of I tell people it's like two museums. It's a history museum on the bottom and a culture museum on the top. And you could spend all day and see all of it or you could 
pick and choose and it's still a great experience. Oh, absolutely. And one of my uh, one of my uh, compatriots said that the downstairs are the things you have to see. Uh, upstairs are the things you want to see. Uh, I'm going to steal that. That's good. I, I sold it myself. So it's uh, especially <laughs> dealing with, with young kids or the, uh, the downstairs are the things that every American should be aware of. So this isn't uh, directly related to tourism, but it really has impacted how people come and experience D.C., which is that in 2012, Uber started mm. their black town car service in D.C. And I think it's a, a appropriate to remind people that Uber has not always existed in its current form. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, when it started in D.C., yeah. it was a town car service and it cost yeah. more than a taxi. People would proudly say, I'm using Uber because it's better than a taxi. I'm willing to pay more for it. Yep. No, it was, uh, I remember, um, cause I had a blog back then. And so they had a, uh, you know, a blogger night. So they invited us all over to it and, uh, I got a free Uber night, a free Uber ride. Um, uh, and so I got that for our elementary school, um, fundraiser that night. So me and my wife could, could be, uh, we could go drinking and, uh, not have to, you know, get a cab home or anything like that. Um, uh, and it was quite the thing, you know, this, this very nice town car pulls up and a gentleman, you know, I don't think he has quite his white gloves, but he was certainly a cut above your normal driver, uh, lets you into the car and offers you a drink and asks you over the air. It was a very different, uh, it wasn't just jumping, jumping in someone's accord and hoping for the best. It was a, <laughs> it was a, it was a very different uh, experience. And the other nice thing for Uber for us is that we live over here by RFK on the east side of town. And back then, cabs would not come over here. Yeah, you, we had a whole ritual. You, you got in the cab, you, you shut the door, then you told him the address, and he would fight you on it. And like, you know, screw you, man, you're taking me there. You have to. So uh, it was, it was a battle. And that, and Uber, I mean, Uber's got issues, but that changed that whole dynamic quite a bit. Yeah, one thing I say is that Uber's got lots of issues, but the one thing that they really did do is they made those guys clean up their act and stop playing those games. Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, very much so. So yeah, it was, it, they didn't <laughs> they didn't knock down a well running system. So an, another thing to uh, sort of talk about from the 2010s is security related. We've talked a lot about security because that's sort of the name of the game in Washington, D.C., but the White House has really, every year it gets more locked down than the, the year previous. And a big part of that is the fact that there were a whole bunch of people in the 2010s starting, I don't know, around 2014, who just kept climbing over the fence. Yep. Um, it was always a thing. Then the other college students that did it on a dare back then. Again, it was a very, a very different world. And then there's, you know, tragically a lot of uh, suicide by cop attempts where people are trying to get themselves killed and shot. A lot of those don't make the news, or if they do make the news, are very, very low on the uh, list. Um, and both as a college student here in the 90s and as a guide in the last two decades, it was not uncommon to to be rerouted around it, to be blocked around it. I, I would love to see the numbers on the actual jump. If, if the numbers increased or if just with social media, we became more aware of them now, um, now that everyone tweets it or puts it on Facebook or whatever the kids are doing now. What the hell is TikTok? Something I'm not sure. That's disseminating. That's getting out there a lot more than it would have back in the uh, the old Stone Age analog days. Yeah, and the other reason we notice it is because every time it happens, they take some more drastic action. So on the north side of the White House, you used to be able to walk up to the fence, stick your camera through the bars and take a picture of the White House. And you can't do that anymore because they built a second fence and now they're building a taller fence. And so any good photos you used to be able to get at the White House from the north side are mostly gone. And on the south side of the White House, they don't even let you go up to the fence anymore. You have to stand on the other side of E Street and see it from afar. Don't get what's going on, on the south side. I mean, you know, I... I... I get the guy to do a new fence. I mean, I, if I could find it, I would, but you know, it, it, it is what the world is, but you think they would have like, they, they've been talking about an E street revamping for decades. If nothing else, 
purely from a security standpoint, this is a huge security risk. You're cramming a lot of people into a tight space that are walled in by fences and jersey barriers. You're just creating a huge target, a huge density of people for them. So uh, so even on its own merits, it makes no sense. I got nothing on that one. But you think you would redo the, the sell side a little bit, make it a little bit more open so people wouldn't crowd it as much. Um, but you, you force the crowds because there's a one way in and basically one way out. So I, I got nothing. I, I don't know. I, I really wonder if people that are that are designing this have ever talked to a tourist or talked to a guide or ever interacted with the, the people that are out there once. I hate to say it, but I don't even take people over there on that side of the White House anymore, except for by request, because it's just not worth. And I even pre-pandemic, I hated crowds. And so cr- crowding in with all those people was just not my idea of a good time. I've basically downplayed the White House as much as possible. You know, you'll see it from the bus when we go down Constitution Avenue. Uh, if you really want to, we'll go to the north side, but it's going to be what it is. And what, the one last thing I think I would say that defines the 2010s, at least to me as a tour guide, are the government shutdowns. There were yes. many of them, but two of them were especially bad. We had a three-week-long shutdown in 2013, and we had a uh, historically long, even longer shutdown in 2018 slash 19. And so yep. to me, those are rough because those are self-inflicted wounds. Those are errors that we <sighs> caused so, ourselves. They're so stupid. They serve no purpose. They're pure know, virtue signaling on part of unlike, whatever. So. Unlike a pandemic, which we can't control and is affecting everybody in the world, when the government shuts down, that uniquely affects our tourism industry. Well, you joke about uh, me being the guy that gets uh, on record for everything, but but the 2013 one was one I uh, was uh, was the Washington Post followed me around for a day and, and and interviewed me as well as the students on how we're dealing with this uh, with this uh, shutdown going on. Um, and you know, weirdly enough, in DC it was okay. We lost some museums, whatever. Um, but our big problem was later on that week we were supposed to go whitewater rafting um, on the Shenandoah and the Potomac, and we couldn't get in because the park service controls all the access points um, and the, the, the rafters have concessions from the park service. So even they could have lifted the raft over the, the one foot fence. Um, they didn't want to risk the concessions, understandably. So, so, uh, so it was just a, it was a silly, silly self-inflicted mess. Yeah. So with that, I will say that they're over, at least for now. Uh, we're, we're closed for a different reason. There's always a looming threat of a shutdown, but we I like to think that um, the last one was so painful, both politically to the people involved and to us, that hopefully they don't try to do it again, but you never know. Yeah, I thought that too the first time, but uh, yeah, no, we'll see. I mean, uh, yeah. I, I, like you said at the beginning of the show, we don't know what's going to come in the future, but I think it's going to be different. So uh, how, I don't know, but it would be different from what we've expected. So uh, yeah, I, I hope that's one of the things that goes away in the post-pandemic era. Yeah. So, you know, I, like I said, I don't want to speculate. I know you don't want either, but if, if you just look back on some of these lessons that we've talked about, like for example, with 9-11, there was a dip in tourism in Washington, D.C., and that's going to be painful for us as tour guides and tour companies, but it might be a good thing for people who want to visit and who want to finally see the city without the mega crowds that we've been experiencing lately. Yes. No, I think there's, I think there's a real opportunity for tourists, for visitors in the next year. Once things are opened up a little bit once it becomes a little more safer to travel obviously public health is going to drive that we're not quite there yet but there's going to be a lingering fear among a lot of people and i think a lot of people are going to be eager to come but it's not going to be the same numbers um and then there's just going to be an economic recession there's no way around that that's going to that's going to drive viewership or visitors uh down 
Um, so we're going to be, it's going to be a, a buyer's market for tourism in DC and elsewhere for the next few years. I like the way, I like the way you put that, a buyer's market for tourism. I'm going to steal that one too. There we go, right ahead, yeah. So Tim, I want to thank you so much for coming on and reminiscing on the last 30 years with me. And I introduced you as an author, which means that you have books. So perhaps you I can do. tell people where they can purchase your books and where else they can find you. Uh, well, I don't know where. where's that? So I wrote a couple of books about ghosts and it wasn't from any deep, deep love of ghosts for me, although I'm quite fond of them. Um, but it was simply because uh, Halloween was a quiet time for me in the guiding world, as opposed to the spring tours thing. So I wrote, hey, you know, these are fun. Let's do that some stuff. So I wrote Capitol Hill Haunts and Ghosts of Georgetown. And obviously they're available on the, you know, the Amazon stuff from that right now. But uh, uh, when when you can go to a bookstore, I recommend East City Books here on Capitol Hill. Uh, they carry Capitol Hill Haunts so you can come and, go and, and other local ones as well. Where, where better to buy a book about Capitol Hill than on Capitol I, Hill? I would say so. Of yeah. course. And so, yeah, well, that's great. And I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes just in case anybody wants to get their Kindle edition early. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Thanks for listening to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a Trip Hacks DC guided tour, visit triphacksdc.com.